When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I call my yeye several times a year, usually during the holidays. Our calls always follow the same structure. I say hi. He asks which one of his grandchildren is calling. He asks me if I'm at school or at home. Then we finish. Three minutes of his Chinese and my English going head to head until one of us no longer has any idea what the other is saying. But I feel overwhelmingly guilty that I can't hold a real conversation with him. Aside from a couple of basic English words, he only speaks Mandarin Chinese. You would assume that I can as well, given that both of my parents also speak it, but you'd be wrong. My name is Michelle Liu, and these are some red envelope stories for modern minorities. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is the show about work and life, told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Roman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. Hey, Sharon. Hey, Roman. Happy Asian American Heritage Month. They have a month for everyone now, don't they? Well, I think there's lots of different kinds of people out there with (laughs) lots of different kinds of stories. So, sure. Now, if only there was a podcast for that, huh? Someone someone should get to work on that right away. <laughs> so while this month is AAPI Heritage Month, we are airing conversations with lots of Asian American voices, but we also wanted to mix it up a bit more than our usual song and dance. Yeah. A few months ago, Michelle Liu, a student at Brown University, and more importantly, the co-founder of the new site Red Envelope Stories, heard about our show and she reached out. So- Welcome to Modern Minorities, Michelle. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for having me. I was listening to the podcast and really wanted to work together with you guys to share stories about Asian Americans, but also about people in general and how we all have the same feelings and experiences and tying the specifics of our lives to this universal story of how we go about everything. Absolutely. Yeah. As many folks know, in Chinese culture, the color red actually symbolizes good luck and prosperity. And as I've learned, gifts of money are often given in red envelopes on special occasions. Hong Bao, I believe they're called. That's yeah, great Chinese. Mm-hmm. It's a good thing I didn't say chow su, <laughs> which is also red and delicious. That is uh, true. <laughs> but at Red Envelope Stories, the gifts are personal stories that people share. Stories that grapple with modern Asian diasporic identity. And Michelle, you've created such an amazing community. At Red Envelope, what inspired this? What made you decide to start Red Envelope Stories? I've always been a writer. I love storytelling. And rather than explaining to people concepts such as racialization or the mom minority myth, 
people can really relate to others through personal narratives. And by having these intimate and specific experiences accounted by Asian Americans themselves, people can really relate and understand and empathize with what they're going through and challenge different notions and narratives of what they know to be the AAPI experience. Also, the format of the newsletter is really digestible, so it's not just something that's full of jargon or very long and a huge commitment every week to read. I think having it be that really short 150-word story length is really accessible for others and something that's fun to read and can help you gain better insight into the experiences and feelings of the AAPI community. Well, uh, Michelle, I, I want to learn a little bit about you before we dive right in, but I, I got to ask the question I'm sure you've never been asked before. Where are you from? <laughs> yeah, that's a really funny question. I guess I was born in Pennsylvania and I moved to New Jersey. So I grew up predominantly in Plainsboro, New Jersey, but everyone just says we're from Princeton, gotta be elite <laughs> like that. But <laughs> my parents are from Beijing and Tianjin. So those are two really big cities in China. I spent a few years as a toddler growing up there, but I sort of lost some of my Chinese culture growing up in a predominantly white community when I was in elementary school. So I actually attended Christian school in elementary school. And then I moved to Plainsboro. And Plainsboro is predominantly Indian American, actually. So I would say that throughout high school, middle school, middle school and high school, I did grow up in a predominantly Asian, Asian American community. Nice. What did you want to be when you grew up? Okay, I remember the funniest thing when I was in elementary school, I wanted to be a cashier because I thought that the cashiers <laughs> took the money from the register for themselves. <laughs> but I quickly learned. <laughs> so it was really funny because on like, we had like posters we would make to show off to our parents at the end of the year, like what you wanted to be. Other people wanted to be doctors and veterinarians or <laughs> engineers. And then like I wrote in huge letters, I wanted to be a cashier. And my mom was like, what has my child like, <laughs> you know, like turned out to be so actually she was mortified. Yeah, she was mortified. So luckily I learned that cashiers don't really hoard the money for themselves. And I changed my answer in elementary school. It was something really stupid and funny, but Everyone just put down, I wanted to be a billionaire. So I'm not sure if that's my goal right now. But right now, I would say I want to be either a professor or some sort of entrepreneur. And what do your parents want you to be? So I think that's a complicated question because I don't think they had any aspirations of me wanting to be, let's say, like a specific career or like doctor. I would I would say that at the beginning of college, they really urged me to pursue computer science to become like a software engineer or something like that. But I I didn't really like CS. I didn't like the CS courses I took as much as I did like statistics or sociology. So I think, I guess I'm going into consulting this summer, management consulting. So they've settled that. I guess that pays the bills and it's it's sustainable and you can always become a professor or a writer later down the line. What's really awesome about going into consulting or just starting a business for yourself, I really appreciate the autonomy of starting something yourself. You're not really working for other people. You're really driving the project and you're deciding how to proceed and you're really fulfilling a personal dream or something that matters to you intimately. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I'm sure that's how you guys feel about the podcast too. You're, you're not really at the whims of any other person but yourself. And you really can hold yourself accountable for any of the progress or changes. And you're in charge through the difficulties and successes of it all. You're there. I mean, Remen and I are farther along in our life's journey than you are. And I always try not to give advice, like direct advice to younger people, but and you have well, an Wait, asked, we're not young? Gonna, what? We're, well, we're, we're on the older end of the spectrum. Long in Michelle. the tooth. <laughs> we're a little long <laughs> in the tooth. But I would say, you haven't asked, but I'm going to give you advice anyway. I would say keep going. Whatever sparks that flame for you, keep that going. And if it is management consulting, if you find that at the end of the summer, that also sparks some flame, then that's great. But I, I've got my theories on on where you might end up maybe 20 years down the line. Yeah, Michelle, this we really tricked you. This is just a career coaching intervention podcast. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, but like you should, and this comes up a little in some of the stories, but the best way to find your path is to try things. And it's the older, I'm saying it, the older you get, it's harder to try things. And this mm-hmm. podcast project, Sharon and I have known each other for 20 years. We met at the beginning of our careers and we've stayed in touch as friends and professional colleagues and- this podcast was an experiment born out of a conversation a couple mm. of years ago. And yeah. one year later, here we are talking to entrepreneurs like you. So I got to ask, Michelle, what is one of your red envelope stories? Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Something that I've really grappled with is my identity as a Chinese American growing up in a predominantly Asian township. Hmm. I think because I was, you know, immersed in this Asian culture, like we got Diwali off, like (laughs) it was a holiday in our um, district. Like I never really understood my positionality on like the racial ladder, I guess, in America, the racial totem pole. And when I came to Brown, it was completely different. I came from a high school of 80% Asian Americans, maybe maybe overestimating that statistics, but it's predominantly Asian to a institution that was predominantly white, but also had so many different other cultures that I didn't really interact with much before. And I think growing up in that Asian community, I didn't really understand where I fit. And I I didn't really consider race as much. And when I came to Brown, where the demographics were completely different, I finally realized the tenuous and nuanced position that Asian Americans have in our society. And learning about concepts such as the bamboo ceiling and the mall minority myth and really reflecting upon the racial hierarchy of our society allowed me to delve deeper into other people's racial stories and racial backgrounds. And I think I grew up in a high school where everyone was like, oh, race is a social construct. We didn't really talk about microaggressions or were things related to race that really mattered. And this really surfaced last year around the time when the pandemic hit, when a student in our district called Black students monkeys and chimpanzees and like used the N-word. And yeah, that was a culture I grew up in where people would just throw around the N-word and they weren't very sensitive to racial issues, racial injustices. And coming to Brown and taking my first class called race, class, and ethnicity in the modern world with Professor Jose Isijan, I started to realize the role of race in our identities. And it's not something that's all-encompassing of who we are, but 
it's a part of yourself to embrace and accept, and I think understand the value of. Yeah, it almost became politically correct to say years ago, "Oh, I don't see color, I don't see race," but that misses the point, doesn't it? It's like you、mm-hmm. need to see it. You need to. We need to see it. We need to understand it. And I think that concept is become starting to become more popularized now. And I think that's why. Platforms like yours that really shine a light on what those experiences are, and even what we do on try to do on this podcast is is that.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. How many stories have you collected so far for red envelope stories? We've collected hundreds of stories. We are continuing to grow and receive more submissions, and people from all over the world have submitted from Australia to England to United States, and、wow. it's really awesome to hear. How even geography can affect someone's experiences and different ages too. People as young as in their teenage years to people who are much older have all submitted their stories and taken time to reflect and share something so personal and intimate that yeah, it's 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 really rewarding just reading and hearing about what people experience in their lives as a part of the Asian community. That's awesome. Can we hear some of them? Yeah, I thought you guys would never ask. We <laughs> collected some of our favorite stories and had the original writers record them. The first one is Brijong. Growing up in a 96% white town, I remade myself as white. Since Asians were smart, I pretended to be dumb. Since my Chinese food smelled weird, I bought school lunches. Since Asians were unathletic, I made sports my life. I avoided East Asian groups and never posted pictures with Asian friends. But I did not realize that although I excluded myself from Asians, I was still excluded from white circles. They never saw me as their own. It took a painstakingly long process, but I finally reconciled with my Chinese identity. A huge part was meeting people at Brown who genuinely appreciated my culture and heritage. Another part was writing my own Guzheng songs, making interactive artwork, and self-reflecting on my identity in the creation process. Now I've finally decided to pronounce my last name correctly. I used to always Americanize Zhang as Zhang, but now I say Zhang, the real way. That story. Really resonated with me in so many ways, because it's a story of conforming to fit in, and then a story of finding themselves and celebrating their own uniqueness in such a poignant way. Yeah, God, Michelle, I thought these were going to be fun, happy stories. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'd be lying if I said this was one of the first ones I read, and it just hit me square in the jaw. Like I would be lying if I said I didn't feel this way, that, that I didn't hide things about my identity growing up. It's oddly comforting, even though I'm okay, I'm good. Years on, like I hope Bree is, but it's comforting in a weird way to know that other people felt this. Because when you're feeling the things that Bree talks about, you feel so isolated.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think when she says like Americanizing her last name, I I never really even thought about it. Like people would be like, "How do you pronounce your last name?" I would just say Lou. Like I didn't care that much, but 
Liu is the actual pronunciation, and the way that Bree writes it really allows her to take stake and claim her identity back, and tell this is the right way to say something, say my name. <laughs> yeah, I again, I'd be lying if I say I wasn't guilty of letting people mispronounce my name just because it's easier. Like it took a while. It took a while. So this next one is from James Hong. But for some reason, I still find it difficult to say I love you to them. These past couple months of summer break were full of late night conversations with my dad about my future ambitions, swimming and playing basketball with my brother, and eating endless plates of Korean food made by my mom. But the break was now over, and it was time for me to move on to the next stage of my life in college. Although it seemed like there was little left to talk about, I had tons to say to my family. How thankful I was, how much I loved them, how I will miss them so much. As we approached the airport, I tried to collect my rambling thoughts and prepare what to say as I left. But as the car pulled up to an entrance, I briskly hugged my parents and hurried off while muttering, goodbye. The parting felt so rushed and incomplete. Just thinking of the word family gives me feelings of warmth, love, and belonging. Whenever I go through the old photos of my family on my phone, I'm reminded of what means most to me, and my mood instantly brightens. I care deeply about my parents and brother, and they are my priority. But for some reason, I still find it difficult to say, I love you to them. Yeah, it's such an Asian thing to not say those words. I mean, I remember growing up and just never never hearing that from my parents and never never having to say it back, and especially, I think, with the older generation. So the, the idea of plates of food as a way to express love was show don't tell right show don't yeah <laughs> definitely something in my own family my grandfather was he was a chef he was a restaurateur it sounds so fancy when i say that and meanwhile <laughs> i think of him literally standing in the kitchen like at, at a walk in a chinese restaurant but when you say chef you think of like a guy in a white like a, a white <laughs> uniform it's different but uh, so he was always he was always cooking in restaurants but he barely ever cooked at home it was something that my grandmother did and when she passed away he, I'm going to start to cry. He, he made a meal for me and she and I were really close and he knew how hard it would be for me to go back to their house for the first time. And like, I had avoided visiting him for a long time because I couldn't walk back into their house without her being there. And he invited me over for dinner and he cooked me dinner. And that was his way of saying, I love you. And I mean, this was probably 20 years ago. And even as I talk about it now, it's really like that's, I felt it really deeply at that moment, just all the plates of food that he had set out in front of me. And we had a really nice meal together, just me and him together, which also was very rare because usually it was around a big table with the rest of my family. So this one, this one for me, like really pulled at my heartstrings when I read it for the first time. Yeah, Sharon, I totally relate. I think sometimes even my father, he really shies away from sharing his emotions, but sometimes he'll still cut fruit where I know it's like stereotypical, but he'll still try to put in that effort, especially with our damaged relationship, those small acts that try to mend some hurt in the past. Yeah, I think saying I love you, it might not just be an Asian thing, but especially in Asian culture, the words themselves are sometimes hard to express. I wonder, but at the same time with James's story, he's of our generation, I would assume. 
And Mm -hmm. we, having been raised in this country, going to school, watching TV and movies, contextualize the saying of I love you is how you communicate love. Whereas in our parents, in the culture back home, be it in India, China, Korea, wherever, might be you you demonstrate that love. It's not a thing you say, right? It just isn't. Yeah. And so it's like yeah. we're caught between we're expecting to hear it and our parents are giving it to us. They're showing it to us. They're just not saying it. And oftentimes, I don't think it's not until later that you realize, oh, they were showing me love all along with those plates of food, right? With those things that they were doing with those long hours that they were working or spending Mm -hmm. time with us on that algebra homework. All too relatable. Yeah. Yeah. With like the extra snacks in your book bag, like those types of things. Yeah. This next one is from Caitlin McCartney. I hate persimmons. I like them as a fruit, but I love what they represent. When I was younger, my grandparents would always babysit me as any loving grandmother would do. My grandma would cut up dozens of her homegrown persimmons for me after school. Whenever I brought a friend over, she would persistently offer us fruit, saying in her Filipino accent, Palanga, you and your friend need a snack, have some persimmon, eat. I knew that my non-Asian friends had never seen this fruit, and this was confirmed by the puzzled faces when they glanced at the orange crescents on the plate. I was embarrassed. They must think I'm weird because I eat weird food, and why does my grandma call me that? And why does she shove food down our throats? In middle school, I learned to run up the stairs when I brought a friend over in order to avoid the interaction with my grandparents. I could no longer enjoy persimmons. Now when I look at one, I remember I was ashamed of my grandparents and how I had tried to hide them from my friends. This one I really this one I really liked as well. My own relationship with persimmons is one that's also fraught with various emotions. It's such a it's such an Asian fruit, and it's a foreign fruit, if that makes sense. And so When I read this, I could really relate to having something that symbolized being between two worlds of having something that's very recognizable inside your home, or in this case, inside grandma's home, and then having to almost like be a different person or, or relate to it in a different way outwardly. It's it's like the code switching of as kids, we just want to fit in. We don't want people to know about the, the weird food we eat at home or the, the weird music mom and dad play or the smells that come out of the kitchen. But I get where Caitlin's coming from. But then at the same time, I wonder if Caitlin's friends were like, wow, this is so cool. Right. <laughs> you know? All right. we got are apples. Yeah. But Caitlin yeah. doesn't know that. It's embarrassing. I, I, can cr- I cringe with Caitlin when, when the persimmons or the mangoes come out. I would say persimmons are actually really delicious. I remember... Fake news. I- <laughs> I actually don't think they are, Michelle. I'll be honest. I don't like persimmons. (laughs) Am I like thinking of the wrong fruit? I feel like they're very satiating. You you might be right. (laughs) You might be right. You might be right. (laughs) I was thinking actually of an experience I had when I was younger. My white friends came over. I think we were in the same Girl Scout troop. And my mom gave them hot water. I think, I'm not sure if this is like an Asian thing or not, but my mom would always drink hot water. She, She never drank cold water and she even microwaved milk and i think juice which looking back on is strange but my wife was just like what is going on where is the cold water where are the cold beverages and i felt like mom don't you know these things about society like we, we should be drinking colder beverages and i yeah i, I that's what, that stuck with me over the years for some reason this next one is from naomi kim Why had I thought it wouldn't matter, the fact that I'd grown up in the near absence of other Asian Americans? In my small town, I was used to my otherness. But tonight, 
in college, at this Asian American student gathering, this is a new kind of otherness, and it is worse. Everyone here seems to share something I don't, a certain ease, a certain kind of experience. I don't feel Asian enough, Korean enough. I am all wrong in the one place I thought I would be right. So I slip out the door, unnoticed, unmissed. September is cool against my skin as I walk back to my dorm through the dark, alone. When I step into the circles of light cast by the street lamps, I see my discomfort, my confusion, nakedly exposed for a brief moment. Then I pass again into the shadows. I didn't grow up around a lot of Indian people, not in college, not grown up. And when I got into professional society, there was a lot of South Asian communities that had hung out together and done a lot. And I wanted to interact with them, but I just, I don't know. I, I didn't feel Asian enough, Indian enough. I am all wrong in the one place I thought I would be right. This It's just another universal story. And maybe it doesn't necessarily apply just to ethnicity, but when I thought I found my people and be that Indian Americans in the professional world, in the big cities of America, or Indians working side by side in, in Asia, where I used to live, like, I don't know. It's like this otherness and the outsiderness. I feel like it's always been part of me. Right. Yeah. I, I did grow up with a lot of Asians around me. So I didn't feel too much otherness in America, in the US. But when I've been back to China, I remember the first time I went back to Hong Kong, I felt so different from everyone else. And I didn't expect that in any way. And it is this feeling of, it was a feeling of just kind of looking like everyone outwardly for the most part. I was taller than everyone and a little bit bigger than most people, uh, which is weird because I'm not very big at all. <laughs> but then also just just really feeling like I, I didn't belong. And it, it, it was a, it's a stranger being in a foreign land kind of an experience. Yeah, I think going back to what we were saying before, I think this is a story about belonging. And maybe it's not just about being Asian. I think it's sort of a relatable college experience where you're trying to find your people and you don't know if you, you belong at first. Yeah. This next one is from Anonymous. Mental health is important and your feelings are valid. Growing up, mental health wasn't a thing that was talked about. There was no such thing as anxiety. That's what you got from thinking too much. There was no such thing as depression. That was for privileged white kids who were too bored with their lives. Americans are overmedicated and therapists are for crazy people. Don't worry, no one in our family could be crazy. It took moving out and getting my own health insurance to see that it can be helpful to talk about your feelings with an external person. That regardless of what I was told growing up, my feelings are valid and they deserve respect. That even if my life is not as hard as that of someone who grew up in communist China, my struggles are still real. The pressure to succeed in an Asian family can be immense and can have lifelong implications for how you view the world. Try to take some time to process everything. You'll be better off in the long run. Oh my gosh, this one. So I was a psychology major in college and learned so much about mental health, academically anyway, at that time. Then I graduated from college and entered my 20s and it was like trendy to go see a psychologist. Like everyone just did it, I have a therapist. So I started to see a therapist just overall and 
sat on the couch, talked a ton about my family and my childhood and my upbringing and all of the, all of the things that I think are much more just openly discussed now. And I remember mentioning to my parents that I had a therapist and it was the same, it's the same experience here of them being like, well, you don't, you, you don't need a therapist. Like, what are you, what are you talking about there? And I'm like, you guys, <laughs> and they're like, wait, hold on. Like, so there's just so much stigma around, around mental health overall, I think in the culture. And also to the point where even the idea of keeping yourself healthy, right? Like you, we go see a doctor, we check our eyes every year, going to see someone to just make sure that your your psychology is in order, if that makes sense, isn't something that's openly accepted within our culture. I mean, I, I think it's the dual-edged sword of our culture being American culture, mental health has its own stigmas. But in Asian culture, be it East Asian or South Asian, it is be it the idea of face and not wanting to show what's going on, or even the opposite, I think, in South Asian culture of you just want to show the best thing ever, like at all yeah. times, nothing. Mm -hmm. It's something I think I'm glad to see our society is finally coming to understand that this stuff is real. And I think our generation is driving that. But yeah, man, even this podcast, like it's just, you, you just need to talk to people, you just need to talk it out. You just as as the person who wrote this said, externalize it a little more because when you do that, you give it life. You you can look at it, you can think about it, you can examine it. And if we don't do that, like it's really dangerous. I think something else to mention is growing up in communist China. Part even though our parents who were immigrants had it really hard establishing a new life for themselves, the mental health struggles we face are still valid and they're still real as well. So it's not just comparing. You guys had it really difficult, and you guys had to make it out here. But it's also that the issues that we might be dealing with, anxiety or whatever, still exist. And therapy can remedy some of our thought spirals or the pressures we're feeling. And especially when the writer talked about there's no such thing as depression where you're too bored with your life. That's definitely something my parents have said when I talk to them about being sad about something or being anxious over something. And I think our culture is shifting away from that stigma and really embracing the value and the experience of therapy as something that can help you and benefit you as a healthy individual. So this next one is also from an anonymous writer. My mom emigrated from the Philippines when she was a teenager. She proudly tells me that people used to call her a banana because of her unasianness despite her appearance. I think she was proud of that rather derogatory term because it meant that she had assimilated, that she made the path ahead of herself easier. She married a Caucasian man. I told my mom that I was writing a story about my Asian identity. She responded, but you're not Asian. When I was applying to colleges, she said, don't check the Asian box. It has taken me such a long time to accept and take pride in my identity. I just can't deny it for the sake of assimilation or societal ease. How can I deny my Asianness when everyone treats me as Asian and when I am raised with Asian expectations? I asked my mom, how many times do I have to be stereotyped or called a racist slur for me to count as Asian? Am I not your daughter? You know, something we've been unpacking a lot on this podcast is the, the melting pot, the issues with the melting pot and assimilation. And I think assimilation, when, when it's done at the expense of something else, is dangerous. I think assimilation is okay when it just happens. But I get it. It's funny. Like, I think it's 
every generation experiences something differently relative to how they came in this country. I can at the same time empathize with with the writer's mom a little bit because like she's just trying to fit in. You're just trying to make it. It, it, You already do stand out versus the kid wants to fit in in a different way. I I don't know, Sharon. I mean, how have you felt about it? I think this applies to how I I think about my own children, right? Who are half Chinese and half black. I mean, the the writer here is, I'm assuming she's half white and half Filipino. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. it's an interesting dynamic of being I would assume she's she's different from both her parents because she's a combination that they've never experienced themselves. And yet her mother is denying her of that part of her identity in some ways by telling her not to identify with the Asian side of her when she probably looks quite more Filipino than white. Mm-hmm. I'm making so many assumptions here. Um, <laughs> and so therefore, in the world anyway, people are seeing her as being part Asian or half Asian or maybe even mostly Asian, depending on how she's presenting. See, I don't Um, know. I almost went the other way with it. Maybe the mom was saying, because she was presenting white, take advantage of that. Oh, this is a white person's, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, not sorry. Yeah. If you are white, your life is a little easier. And the mom might be saying, hey, own it. If you can get away with it, go, go for it. Mm -hmm. Sneak in, sneak in the side door. I'm yeah, not. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying right. th- maybe that's where the mom's coming from. Yeah, here. that's that's an interesting perspective too. Yeah, I think also with college admissions and especially in Asian culture, where you go to college is so heralded. And maybe this writer's mom is also feeling that if you can get away with being white, Asians might be at a disadvantage or something. That's what I heard a lot growing up in my high school. Maybe she's pushing the writer to identify as white. This next one is from Ashton Lamb. I call my yeye several times a year, usually during the holidays when he sends me gifts in the mail. Our calls always follow the same structure. I say hi. He asks which one of his grandchildren is calling. I thank him for the gift. He asks me if I'm at school or at home. Then we finish. Three minutes of his Chinese and my English going head to head until one of us no longer has any idea what the other is saying. I've never been super close to my yaya, or any of my grandparents for that matter, but I feel overwhelmingly guilty that I can't hold a real conversation with him. Aside from a couple of basic English words, he only speaks Mandarin Chinese. You would assume that I can as well, given that both of my parents also speak it, but you'd be wrong. I picked up more Spanish in three years of high school instruction than I did Chinese across eight years of week in school. <laughs> Embarrassing. I don't know why I resisted it for so long, but I finally came around to learning Chinese seriously. Perhaps I've just realized that it's for my own good to be able to communicate with my yeye before it's too late. Either way, I'll be enrolling in a beginner's Chinese course next semester to pick up where I left off since my last official Mandarin class in 2015. Hopefully, my Chinese near call with yeye can last four minutes this time around. I love this story so much. This, I felt, is a story of just really trying to bridge the gap, right, between languages, but also between generations, and to extend that connection through language. And I can relate to this for sure, because I feel like I went to Chinese school, not for eight years, that's a long, that's probably a lot longer than I had, but definitely for at least five years. And I still can't, I can't read anything beyond like a first grade reading level. I can 
at the very basic level, just order in a restaurant, but that's as far as it goes. And mm. I, I too feel embarrassed by that because I feel like I should have probably paid more attention or put more focus on it. And I, I find myself in situations as well where I can't really give directions to people when they're asking me for directions in Chinese or um, I'm unable to talk about anything deeper than just the formalities. I, I've had those phone calls. And the irony is the grandparents I was on the phone with lived in England at the time and spoke pretty good English, but it was the, it's not even the language barrier. It's the, how do you talk to this generation? Okay. My parents are telling me I need to get on the phone with grandma and grandpa. Hi, grandpa. So relatable. Yeah. Hi, grandpa. Yeah. How are you? What's the weather like today? Oh, the weather's right. good. School is good. And that was literally every conversation with grandma and grandpa over the phone for 10 or 15 years. And fortunately, they moved to the States and I started seeing them more often. And as I started to wake up to the idea that they had stories that I wanted to hear about my parents mm -hmm. in Africa mm -hmm. and England and India. And my grandma didn't speak as much English as my grandpa did, but it was just, but it's just like those four minute conversations. I just, I, And I think about language a lot too. Like, would it have been easier? Sometimes I would, especially with my grandma, I'd be like, mom, just tell me what she's saying. Mom, tell her this. Like, don't have your own conversation with her while I'm sitting here. I want to be part of it. But mm. four minute conversations with your grandparents. Oh my gosh. And I, I, I wonder if I'm going to be doing that with my kid and my parents <laughs> when they talk. Yeah, I can relate to this so hard because... Whenever my mom is talking to my grandparents on the phone and she's like, Michelle, come over here. I, I want to say so much, but my vocabulary is limited. And especially when I want to ask them more about their pasts and my lawyer is really incredible. He's my mom's father. I, I don't have the words and sometimes my mom is acting as the translator. I'll say I'll say a few words in Chinese and then I'll be like, how do you say? And then my mom will substitute, the, like my mom will say the word and then I'll go back to saying something. And it's just very stagnated or very like not smooth. And I want to ask my grand grandfather all about his life and it's hard, it's hard. And yeah, like, like Sharon, I wish I paid more attention in Chinese school, but it's never too late to learn. And I think that's the beauty of these stories. There's always time to connect with your culture. Yeah, Michelle, I mean, these stories are just a taste. They're so great. They're deep. But first I was like, are these going to be all funny stories, funny anecdotes? But they're really rooted in feelings and experiences that are mm -hmm, relatable mm -hmm. or sometimes even foreign, but there's a universality. So I got to ask, what's been the response so far to all of these red envelope stories, people reading other people's stories? Yeah, I would say we've received a lot of great feedback. I think that finally have realize the importance of sharing these types of stories. And not only are people starting to reflect and grapple with their own identities, but also find some sort of belonging and community within our subscriber base. And sharing these stories, I think, like, like both of us have expressed, makes your experiences not feel so isolated, knowing that other people have thought of these things before. And it puts your experiences into words, which is really nice, especially when you have these great writers like Naomi and Ashton. Yeah. How can people contribute or learn more about Red Envelope Stories? 
Yeah, our website is redenvelopestories.net, and people who are interested can just subscribe. It's a weekly newsletter that you can read three really short stories that are heartwarming, insightful, whatever our theme is that week. And below the subscribe form, there's a place where you can submit your own story, and really you can talk about anything. And if you need more guidance, there's prompts as well. And feel free to reach out to us at redenvelopestories at gmail.com. We respond to all emails because we really want to foster that community and that appreciation for our own identities. Michelle, I think what you're doing is so amazing and so inspiring. And the fact that you're doing it and you're still in college is even more amazing. So I'm glad you started this and I'm glad you've spent some time with us today. I'm wondering if you're ready for speed round. Yeah, I'm super excited. <laughs> oh, wrong answer. No one's oh. ever ready for speed round. <laughs> Michelle, what's one thing about you that no one expects? Not about me, but my grandfather speaks Russian. <laughs> he does? That's pretty yeah, awesome. I know, right? So going back to what I was saying, I wish, why am I learning Chinese? I should be learning Russian. We can speak in Russian and people would be like, Whoa, what's going on? Yeah, you have your own little secret language going. <laughs> yes, yes. I don't know. Did your parents actually ever do the secret language thing? You'd be at a restaurant and they'd be like talking about how expensive it is. Oh, and- all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Chinese people, all the time. Or you have the kids' menu when you're like already a teenager. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Michelle, can you recommend a book or a movie that has characters that you relate to? Wow. Okay. So I recently watched Sound of Metal, which is super good. And it's about this drummer who goes deaf and he's really grappling with what it means to lose your hearing and lose your career in a sense. And I think it might replace one of my other favorite drumming movies, which is Whiplash. (laughs) And And I related to Whiplash a lot because that character is really balancing that pursuit of greatness and becoming a legend with what his personal life and his own journey and what it means to really become famous, but what you, what you give up in that process. And I guess it's just a deeper question of what you want out of life, whether it's that fame and recognition and going down in history as one of the greats, or if you value something else in your life. So I've been really thinking about those movies recently. I've been reading books too. I This is a book by an Asian American author, Ling Ma. Severance was pretty good. I read that recently. And Minor Feelings is also getting a lot of attention, but I read it. I read it like a while back, so I was raving about it way before everyone else. You knew what was up before everybody else. Of course, yeah. <laughs> well, one thing I will tell you is Riz Ahmed is way cooler than Miles Teller. So that's I cool. love Riz. Yeah, yeah, he is like perfect. <laughs> <laughs> what is your favorite mom dish? I like my mom's dumplings. When I think of dumplings, I also think of like xiaolongbao, which is really delicious. Like when they have the soup. That like spills out of the so good. What goes in your mom's dumplings? Different things. I would say like pork usually, scallion, lettuce. Yeah, that's become a real tradition in our house making dumplings now. It's cool. Do you guys make them from scratch, Roman? Well, we we buy the you can buy the like the circle or the The square papers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, but everything else, yeah. You you always impress me and surprise me. I was just like, got, I, I got to get on your level. You got to up your game. Start making some samosas and some pakoras. <laughs> yeah, Come exactly. on, Sharon. Up, up my culinary game, up my parenting game. <laughs> Michelle, what's your least favorite food? I don't know. Hmm. 
veto rights? What do you have? Like if it shows up on the plate at a restaurant, at a friend's house, you can be like, nah, not going to do it. I don't know. I Maybe like artichokes. I think it's how you prepare them though. I think all food can taste good. Just how you prepare it. Also, I would say like- <laughs> That is such a politically correct answer. No, I'm going <laughs> to- No, you got- I need some hate, Michelle. None of this youthful optimism. Anything yeah. can be prepared. Come on. You got to lay down some hate. hate? I, I really don't know like a food I hate. I guess I'm like just avoiding like really fried or greasy foods. So. Oh, come on. No. Okay. No, no, I don't know. No, no. Um, I guess like any food that looks really like artificial, like neon, like I would just be like questioning it. Yeah. Like if you give me like a neon yellow piece of food, I would be like. All right. Neon <laughs> yellow fried Twinkie, Michelle. <laughs> That's that's yes, that tastes like that sour. Yeah, not for her. When you said neon yellow, I was thinking of those daikon radishes that you get like oh. on the side, right? Like sometimes they no, serve. No, but this is like a neon yellow fried Twinkie. Yeah, least favorite. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'm willing to give you a pass on that, but I I think that's I don't know if that's you, a have, real you haven't answer. lived enough until you hate enough food. I yeah. Say. Wow, yeah. that's like going on my kitchen inspirational quote. <laughs> Who is someone out there that you would want to interview on a podcast? Yeah, I was talking about this with a friend and I was like, wow, there's so many people that I would love to interview. I would say Ray Bradbury. Like he's a really amazing writer. Fahrenheit 451. Yeah. Yes. The movie was so ironic though, don't you think? I didn't see it. I didn't see it. I'm old. I don't have that movies. I heard it didn't get that many good reviews. Michael B. Jordan though and Michael Shannon, Mm -hmm, two mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. our great actors of our generation yeah for sure i really love his writing i think i've watched a few interviews with him and he just seems like he has so many insights to share and his writing is like again super beautiful i love the book and all his imagery and similes and his ideas are yeah they're really wonderful so i would love to talk to him so michelle last question what does being a modern minority mean for you Hmm. i think it means something different for everyone obviously for me. And I think being a modern minority means coming to terms with your identity and who you are and really embracing it and taking the time to reflect upon what you want to show through your identity. And whether this is related to your ethnicity or gender or whatever, really embracing and accepting yourself and having confidence in yourself. It's a lifelong journey, I think. But that's what being a modern minority means for me. Being in the majority sometimes isn't all that great either, right? Being, I feel like minority communities have that intimacy and personal connection. And going back to the confidence thing, I think that's what it means to be a modern minority. Awesome. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for joining us and for bringing some red envelope stories to our show. And best of luck with the platform as it continues to grow. We can't wait to see what's next. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us. Hi, mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. Now, here's a preview of our next episode. 
When I was nine, ten, I got to meet all my American cousins. Some of them didn't speak Korean at all. I didn't speak English. Suddenly, this world opens up. You meet people related to you, living a completely different life. And I just remember the energy, some openness, kind of free to be. That gave me a taste. And so we started having conversations as a family. What could that mean? If this is what you want, let's try it. So we picked up everything, left everything behind, and moved from Korea to Canada. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segal. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.